Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. My name is Scott Haskin and I am your host on the Haskin Cast podcast because who else is going to do it? I am very excited to bring you another episode this week. I've been trying to do this one for quite some time. Uh, my guest Rachel and I have been working on this for a while. She has a very, very busy schedule and uh, we were able to lock this down during the lockdown uh, where her time still isn't that freed up, surprisingly. Uh, she's a very busy teacher and her uh, her home lessons have picked up. And I believe uh, at the time I'm recording this, I believe we're going to have a link to the show notes to where you can reach her if you're interested in getting lessons from her online. She's absolutely amazing, very knowledgeable, very skilled, very passionate performer, and uh, she'd be a great person to get lessons from. So check that out in the show notes. And uh, I have to uh, give a shout out to Fry's Electronics, who, if you are on the West Coast in some areas of California, Arizona, and Nevada, not sure if they have stores anywhere else, uh, they are a very large electronic store. They're kind of not quite target size, but pretty close, it feels like. Uh, tons and tons of, of components. They go so far beyond just uh, computers and things. They have, you know, cameras and appliances and gadgets and uh, records. They sell LPs, which seems weird. Uh, it just seems weird to see LPs on the shelves anymore, but uh, I, it's kind of neat. I just wonder, and, you know, Randy and I talked about this in the beginning of the podcast uh, about how they were doing it. And I'm still a little bit skeptical about whether they're just taking the digital uh, pressings and then just putting them on a 12 inch LP. Um, I haven't heard any of them, so I don't know the quality. I don't know if it's if it's recreated warmth or the actual uh, original recordings that are being put directly to LP so that they have that natural analog warmth. Uh, but anyway, it's just kind of weird to see them on the shelves again. And they have quite a stock. They're expensive. They're like 20 bucks a piece. And, uh, but kind of neat, just the same. And, uh, but anyway, so, uh, they now have, uh, at least at my store here in Vegas, they have a pickup only at the front of the store, and you place your order online and you get a confirmation email that somebody has gone through the store and located your order so that you know when you go there, it is there available for you. They've pulled it and everything that you want is actually there and ready to go. Uh, so it's really cool. So they send you the email that they've received your order and then they warn you that, hey, don't come to the store now. Wait like 20 minutes, give us time to pull your order, and then we'll send you an email that confirms we have your merchandise, which I think is really cool. And then, uh, so you just go and it's all, you know, the store's locked out, you can't get in, and uh, they uh, they look at your order on your phone, and then they go and pull it and bring it to you, which is really, really cool. It's a great process, uh, keeps everyone safe. In the beginning of all of this, I had to go pick up something, I can't remember what it was. But I had to pick up something and they were open like you could just go in the store. Uh, they had very few employees. It was kind of like a like you were playing a video game of a deserted electronic store. Uh, but anyway, so they've all changed that. And uh, and it's very cool. I also want to uh, give a shout out to Office Depot slash Office Max, who is doing the same thing. Uh, I had to get something for my new apartment and I picked up uh, a curbside very simple process, uh, very, very great that I don't have to go into the store and that they don't have to have people in the store. Uh, some of the grocery stores are doing a great job with uh, certain elements of their protection. Some I really don't understand. Our local grocer that I go to, um, 
not even half of the employees were wearing masks. They put up these glass partitions between you and the clerk that rings you up, but they, the partition does not extend to where you put your merchandise or where you go to pay for it. So where you're standing there and you're interacting with them the most, there's no, there's nothing between you and, and the clerk. So it's like it was a great idea that just had no intelligent execution to it whatsoever. So it's really interesting to see how different people have handled different things. But this, the some of the smart people are taking advantage, like Rachel, who's now doing these lessons online, uh, which is really cool. And now instead of just uh, being central to her local area of Vegas, now she could teach people anywhere in the world, which is really sweet. So uh, like I said, go check out that link if you're interested in learning percussion, drums, that sort of thing. And we talk about that in the show and uh, and the challenges of teaching i i would imagine right now are uh incredibly difficult for for teachers of all kinds but i've always thought that drumming would be tough online because you know the sound gets so clouded and uh really depends on how close you are how loud you are where the positioning of the microphone and the camera is there's so much to it i would imagine it would be quite a challenge but uh rachel is such a phenomenal player and i've gotten to see her several times in different things that she's performed at she's always performing, whether it's at uh, Planet Hollywood doing Vegas the show as a substitute drummer there, or percussionist, I should say, because she's really more of a percussionist, uh, or she's doing uh, these these different little productions that we have all over the city. The city is so much more than just the shows on the Strip. I mean, yes, it's nice to go see one of the big Cirque du Soleil shows, La Reve at the Wynn, where my friends Angela, Alex, and Tyler perform or uh, where my friend Vincent performs at Blue Man Group. like Stuff like that is really cool to see, but there's also a lot of other productions that happen, and some of them are just so cool, and they're so unique and different. Um, so you know, when you come to town, ask around. Find out what else is going on besides, uh, besides the main shows, and you might get to see something really special and cool. And there was one, uh, the first time I saw Rachel play was at the steampunk version of Alice in Wonderland, which was just an amazing show. Uh, she just She was rocking it the whole night. And uh, the show was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, that was over at the Hard Rock at, um, I can't remember the name of the venue now, but there's there's a couple of different rooms at the Hard Rock where they have concerts. Of course, now it's all being remodeled, so I'm not sure what it's going to look like after uh, after the, the new version of it comes out, after Richard Branson purchased it uh, a few months ago. So we'll see. But in any case, uh, really hoping that everyone out there is staying safe, that you all have the supplies and food that you need. Reach out to people if you're if you're missing something. Uh, see if somebody else can help you. And if uh, you have something that people might need, let people know. Uh, we can all get through this if we just work together. And I, I see some of that happening and I see some of that not happening. So let's all just be smart and kind to each other. And let's take a, take a break. Let's uh, listen to Rachel. Uh, we talked for a, a good hour, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. All right, ladies and gentlemen, much like me, my next guest just bangs on things and gets paid for it. It's a pretty awesome way to live. Let's welcome Rachel to the show. Rachel, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Was that too simplified of an explanation of what you do? Um. No, unless you wanted to add the teaching part. Yeah, yes, absolutely. You, you are a teacher, which, as we were talking before the show, is an incredibly vital uh, part of our future and our present, too, because I think it's really good that uh, kids now are getting into music at, at young ages because it keeps them not just occupied, but it, but music has been proven to really grow us intellectually. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you're teaching percussion, uh, but you also teach piano. Yes, I teach uh, class piano at the school that I work at, 
uh, just beginning and intermediate mm-hmm. and also the percussion. Yes. Were you, you were teaching guitar at one point too, weren't you? I did. I taught guitar for one year. Wow. I, that's, that's a lot of versatility because you're talking a huge variety in the type of instruments you're teaching. Yes. Yep. That I, I was about a week or two ahead of my guitar students, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know, it all works. So we were all learning together and, and they all went on with the, uh, the classes that followed that and they're all doing a great job. So excellent. I, you know, I'm, I'm learning bass guitar and I've been an introductory student for about six years now, but I, I have not had a lot of luck with, with other stringed instruments. So to be able to go from percussion to guitar, to piano, that, that really is a good versatility. I really, you know, commend anyone who can do that. Well, thank you. And, and during this, uh, uh, self-isolation that we're experiencing right now, I also started picking up my ukulele. Really? So that's been kind of fun as well. Yeah. Now, you and I have both been to the NAMM show in Anaheim, and it is uh, there's a good portion of it that is just a sea of ukuleles. Yes. Yes. Downstairs in the, the E hall section. E. Yes. Yeah, I, hall I, E. <laughs> I think that hall has more ukuleles than the entire world needs, but that's... Yes, that's yeah. That's just me. But but it's a good it's a simple instrument to learn how to play. Yeah, it's really fun and actually the one that I own is uh one of my percussion students gave it to me for Christmas a couple of years ago and it was a kit so I actually had to build it. Oh wow, that must have been a challenge. <laughs> it was. I had to do all the correct gluing and stringing and everything and then my uh my art teacher at at my job actually painted it like custom painted different things on it. Oh, how cool. Um, so it's pretty cool. It's a little soprano one. One of the things I do like about them, uh, and especially walking down in Holly at NAM, is that they all have such a personality because they really do a, a lot of work into the decoration of them and really make them a personal instrument. Yes. Yep. They're gorgeous. Very, very cool. So you're, you're also, so you're teaching for a school, but you're also teaching uh, private lessons. Is that just percussion? Yes. My private lessons is just percussion. Um, I've got 10 private students ranging from grade six up to senior in high school right now. Um, over the years though, I've taught the youngest student I ever had was five and she's, yes. And (laughs) she studied with me from age five until she went to college. No kidding. Yes. But you're only like, what, 21, 22? It's not possible. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what what is the, uh, is it more challenging to teach a younger student or, or one that's kind of older and maybe like, yeah, I want to do this, but it's not my main thing? Um, I don't know. You know, most, all of my lessons, I think, are just so customized to the student mm-hmm. that I don't find it, I don't know if I can classify it as easy or hard because it's like I just find what it is that's going to make them tick and and motivate them to learn and and that's how how we approach the lessons and if they figure out that they don't really want to do it then you know they might go on to try something else or whatever sure but but the the young child the youngest one that I had like the five-year-old I usually don't have them that young but she just caught on so quick and she loved it so much it was it was easy to teach her at that young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense, and and I think it's really cool that 
you're giving them that personalized education that's molded to them. Because I think one of the biggest problems in general in our education system is that everything is just form fitted. And if you don't fit in that, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, that makes it really hard. And of course, that's what we get in a lot of our uh, general education, which is why private lessons are so awesome. Mm-hmm. Is it is it kind of the same in, in this, the teaching side of, of music when you're working for a school? Because the curriculum is just, it moves forward at its pace. And you if you're a student, you just got to keep up with it. Yes. Um, and, and that's a, a tricky spot because, again, some are going to move fast, some are going to move medium, some are going to move slow. It's like, you hear the terminology that people use teach to the middle. Mm-hmm. But then I've also experienced people saying teach to the top and the other ones have to catch up. I've also experienced the opposite of that teach to the lower so that you don't leave anyone behind. But then the upper gets bored. Yeah. So like at least in my classroom, I use a lot of the the kids that are pulling ahead quicker to help uh, with the ones that aren't getting it right away. I'll pair them up. Mm hmm. So that they can help each other out. That's good. And that's a great skill to learn, to have it kind of inbred into you that helping others is going to help you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very cool. Now, being that you teach mostly percussion, you know, I love drums. I love the sound of drums. I love rhythms. But I've also worked in a music store and I know what a cacophony it can be. Does it ever just kind of like, oh, God, will you all just stop playing for a minute? Every so often, yes. <laughs> especially when I in, in the classroom when I give them uh like especially when we have new music, I'll give them time to practice it on their own. I'll say, you know, take ten minutes and practice it on your own. So then you got like, you know, twenty-eight kids or something, all percussion mm-hmm. practicing on their own. So yes, it is this big cacophony of sound. But the rule is that they're supposed to stay under a piano dynamic during that time. Oh, okay. So if it gets above that, which it does very quickly, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it actually helps them to learn their dynamics too, because I have, I stop and I say, what are we supposed to be practicing at? And they're like, piano. Mm-hmm. I said, what was that? And they're like, fortissimo. <laughs> <laughs> so they know. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Now, I I, uh, I say I used to work in a music store, and I did, but after a while, like, I just stopped hearing things. I could walk right by somebody blasting away on a guitar through a Marshall cabinet and not even notice it. After, like, my brain just kind of shut it off, but I didn't need to be attentive to the customers because I, I wasn't a salesperson. But for you, you have to be focused and paying attention to what they're doing. Otherwise, you don't know where they're at. Exactly. Yeah. I, I will say that there's sometimes I'm in my office and they're having one of those practice sessions and an administrator or somebody will come in and talk to me. And I'm that same way. I'll just sit there and talk to him. It's like I completely shut out the background. Yeah. And but the the teacher, whoever is standing there talking to me will be like, how can you stand this? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I think we train our brains or they they kind of train themselves to to tune out things that aren't that are maybe loud, but aren't a danger to us. Like, I don't need to pay attention to this right now. So I'm going to give you space to focus on something else. Right, right. Yep. Now I say that you teach percussion. That's a very general uh, term because percussion these days really encompasses a wide variety of instruments. Is it mostly timpani, xylophone, marimba? Uh, Well, those are like the foundation instruments that we, that I teach on Mm -hmm. is yeah. Snare drum, 
mm. and mallet keyboard to start with and then kind of add in timpani and then all the other stuff after that depending on what their focus becomes and stuff like that um in my studio the instruments that we focus on mostly as they get older and, and starting to think about college and stuff are the more um concert percussion yeah it's like oh, what yeah. you mentioned mm-hmm. yeah so all the mallet keyboards the timpani the snare drum the accessories the crash cymbals the triangles tambourines mm-hmm. all that stuff and then there's the the wide variety of hand drums and drums you can sit on and all those different yeah. things that we can use to make <laughs> noise one of the most fascinating things, whenever you pop into my head, one of the most enjoyable and fascinating moments I had with you was when we were at NAMM and uh, I got to, to film you and our friend Alex uh, doing some marimba work uh, to promote their new marimba for, uh, I, it wasn't, um, oh, what's the percussion company? It's not coming to me. It was um, Majestic. Majestic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yes. And you guys did did a great job. And you, but you guys have played together quite a bit. Does it just, when you pull up a piece, is it easy to to just pick it out most of the time? Or do you really need to look at it a good chunk before you want to perform it? Um, like the, the pieces that you saw us performing, mm-hmm. I think we got together once before we went to Nam to play them together. Wow. And that was mostly sight reading at that time. They weren't that crazy difficult. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, of course, it depends on that. But yeah, so if you can remember back to what you saw that day, we were mostly reading that for like the second time. Wow. And it sounded so good. I mean, it didn't it didn't feel like you were struggling. You were very much together playing. And you actually did one piece that I would think was difficult, but maybe from your perspective, it's not, uh, was uh, You're So Cool by Hans Zimmer from True Romance. Oh yes. And okay, so that one <laughs> we that one we had played together before. Mm. Um and yes, that is a more difficult one. That was one that Alex arranged for a wedding oh. ceremony. Wow. Here in um Las Vegas. And they hired us to play their ceremony. And that was the song that they came on the the bride came down the aisle to. What an interesting choice. It's a beautiful song, but I wouldn't equate that to, oh, maybe it's their favorite movie. And that's what I'm wondering, because we didn't, I don't know the history on their relationship with it, or if she just, you know, loved that song or what, but, right. but um, so that one we had played together before and that, that was a bit trickier for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and without having done a lot of rehearsals, it, it always impresses me because yes, I get that you can get really good at sight reading, but sometimes there's just difficult stuff that you have to play. And if you really don't have a grip on it, it can catch you off guard. Oh, yes, definitely. There was a piece I did a couple of years ago for the Philharmonic that uh, I got the music. I think I got the music like on a Monday or a Friday. So it was like within three or four days before the first rehearsal. Mm-hmm. and. It was hard, like to the point that when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, I can't play this in three days. <laughs> and that was at like, say, seven o'clock that night. Mm-hmm. And I practiced that night from like seven until about 11. Next night, seven about to 11. <laughs> next <Wow>. night. <laughs> and I mean, it, I'm talking, I had my metronome set at like quarter note equals 40 beats a minute. And 
I was doing one measure at a time. Wow. And slowly, and I can't remember what the final tempo was, but it was not 40 beats. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very fast, but, but I did it, you know, and I went in and, and, uh, and played it really well. Dare I say I nailed it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and not like the show nailed it where you don't actually come anywhere close to what they want, but actually <laughs> right. like, yes, I actually nailed it. Uh, well, but that doesn't surprise me. And that I think really comes from a couple of things. Obviously, if you're going to be part of an orchestra or a group of any kind, you wouldn't be in it if you didn't want to do it. And you want to do what your job is to the best of your ability to not be the one that screws it up for everyone else. And it, there's a passion for music and wanting to perform well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. You're right. It's like if you're not going to do it, well, then why do it? Exactly. And you are no stranger to performances of all kinds. Yes, I've done uh, quite a, a variety of things in, over the years. Yes, you <laughs> over, have. Over my, over my 21 years. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you have a long way to go. Uh, I And I've gotten, I, I've had the pleasure of seeing you perform many times and I, and I always love it because you, you kind of feel watching you and this is something you don't get to do live is that you don't you don't get to see the passion that that you show you play with you know you're not just you're not just standing up there playing what you're supposed to play like i feel that you're inside of what you're playing you know that's thank you for that that's really cool that you say that too cuz uh i think the only other person who's really ever stated it approximately the same way to me is my mom. Wow. Well, see, no, and she, she and I would get along. <laughs> well, and, and she passed about five years ago. So to yeah. hear you saying that now oh. is like, this even is, that's really cool. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I had no, well, I mean, I knew about her passing, but I never knew she said that. So I feel, yeah. I feel very uh, invigorated right now. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> now I, and the first time that I saw you play was at this sort of really bizarre Alice in Wonderland steampunk show. Oh, <laughs> and it yeah. was it was so cool because it actually had a, a story that you could follow, unlike a lot of our shows here in Vegas, where you're just like, I'm just here for the ride. I don't know what they're trying to tell me, but it's fun to watch. Uh, this actually had like a coherent story from beginning to end. And you played almost the whole t- the whole show. Yeah, there was a lot of, of music in that one. Um, I think I mean, it was all great. And I think one of my favorite parts was the overture to that was um when, when uh, J- uh dave perico was writing that mm. and when he wrote that he called me up like i don't know 11 o'clock midnight something, asking what the range of the glockenspiel was and how to do the notes exactly and everything because it had such a prominent part the glockenspiel yeah. we all like to say that word right glockenspiel. we do we do <laughs> and uh and we went in and read it down and and to this day, it's like I just love playing that that overture uh, for that that particular show. All the music was great, mm-hmm. but that was like the original thing, you know. Yeah. It was a solid soundtrack. I really enjoyed the music, and yeah. Uh, but you know, I think an overture is sadly diminished the first time you see a show because you don't you don't know what it means until the show unfolds, and by then you've forgotten what the overture was. What the overture? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You have to go see it again to really appreciate how the show started. I think. Yeah. And that show was good. I would see that again. 
Oh, yeah, that was a really fun one. There was a revival of that at some point, though, wasn't there? There was, um, I believe, down at the Brooklyn Bowl. Okay. That was the that was the last place that I played it. And then after that, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I saw it at the Hard Rock. Yeah, so that's where I played it first, was mm-hmm. at Hard Rock. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. that's that's the thing is that people are really focused on the major shows here, the Cirque du Soleil shows, Blue Man Group, uh, La Rev shows like that. But there are so many other shows that perform here that are, I guess you'd consider them underground maybe, but there are so many great things to see here besides the big shows on the Strip. Oh, yeah. Yep. In fact, it was like now that we're uh, having this time off before it, it's set in that we really had to just be at home. Mm-hmm. I found myself thinking, oh, I should go see that one show. Oh, I guess I can't. Yeah, <laughs> I did that too. I, uh, I've i been meaning to get over to Planet Hollywood and see zombie burlesque for a long time. Yes. And uh, I haven't made it over there. And I was just talking to Peter, who who's the guitar player in the show. And I said, you know, I really need to come see that. Maybe I'll do that next month. And then I can't. Right, exactly, exactly. But yep. Vegas.com is still sending me deals for show tickets, so I'm like, <laughs> I don't I don't know when to book my ticket. <laughs> I know, that's interesting. It is. I wonder I wonder if you can uh, just get one, and then if, if we're not open yet again, they'll just keep extending it, I would imagine. Maybe, yeah. I don't know that the actual ticket sites are open for purchase right now, unless right. they're booking like way in the future. But speaking yeah. of Planet Hollywood, you also perform at a show at Planet Hollywood. You play you play in Vegas, the show. Yes, I am um, one of the uh, sub-percussionists there. There's there's the main percussionist, and then there's three more of us that go in and kind of rotate around mm-hmm. him. So I play it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've been doing that since, oh gosh, I think this November it'll be eight years. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it's been, I think it's been open for 12 or something like that. It's a great show. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's basically the history of Vegas uh, you kind of feel that old, like, big band era with the the orchestra just on the floor behind what's going on. They have these wonderful sets, a lot of dancing, and uh, and a story that that just kind of unfolds as Vegas was built up. And you see some some very well known people. But as a percussionist in that show, you are very very busy. Yes, there's very little downtime in there, and I I love going in to play that show and. It's like you just go in and you get to, as you said, hit things. I mean, how can <laughs> how can you ever be like an angry person if you get to get to hit things for a living, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like somebody who works in a candle store. You're just smelling these lovely scents all day. You think you couldn't possibly get angry. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but am I, is my perception wrong that that show is just a workout for you? It is. Yeah, there's a lot of moving around. And now that I've been doing it for so long, of course, it's like on autopilot. But sometimes I think about like when I first started and like the first couple, you know, when you go in to learn those shows, if you are going in after the show's already open, you don't get like a practice or anything like that. You just learn as much as you can on your own. And then you go in and play a live show. And that's that's your training. Right. They just throw you into the fire. (laughs) They just throw you in. So I remember that first night actually going in and and I had had my stuff set up at home the best that I could, you know, to try mm-hmm. to learn it. Yeah. And I, I tend to play 
you know, I'm, if I didn't have to wear shoes, like in this world, I never would. <laughs> I like to walk around in my stocking feet. So I, te- I practice like that mm-hmm. and whatever at home. So I got to the show that first night, realizing then that the person who, you know, who it's set up for my, my friend, Bob is about a foot taller than me. Oh no. And so here I was in like three inch heels and so you've seen the show and all the running around, like you said, the workout, I was doing that in three inch heels. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know how drummers in the seventies did it when they used to wear those platform shoes and they would, I mean, some of the <laughs> yes. really good drummers were, were wearing shoes like that. I couldn't play in those. No, no. Yeah. But what, what really, I, I have to tell the story of what happened when I went to see you in that show. Um, I, I, the, the, one of the acts ended and the lights go down and then this alarm sounds and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't know where this is going. And and you don't, because the shows, they're not really predictable. They're, they're not ones where you know what's going to happen next. And so I'm like, okay, I'm curious to see where this is going. And the light stayed off and the alarm kept going. And I'm like, this is a little long. Uh, when are they going to start the act? And it kept going and going. And then I, I texted you. I'm like, <laughs> is something wrong? And you're like, yeah, somebody pulled the fire alarm. <laughs> like it was, it was not part of the show. But the timing of it was so perfect because it was literally the act ended. The lights went down. The fire alarm kicked in. They couldn't have timed that better. Yes. Yep. It was. And then we were sitting behind the curtains. And so like when the curtains closed, we're just kind of hanging out, getting ready for the next thing. And it's usually like, you know, five or 10 seconds later. Yeah. Not that night. Yeah. Nope. We were all <laughs> hanging out for a while. <laughs> it, it was, it was very interesting, but what the other thing that fascinates me about that show and a lot of the shows that we have here is that stage is really not that big, but they utilize the space so well, it feels like a big stage. Yes. Yep. I remember going in um, to watch the show when I was going to learn. So I watched it from the audience first and feeling that same way. And then when you actually get up there and you're on the stage, you're like, this is not a big place, but they do. And to see how they're moving the sets around, mm-hmm. you know, behind the curtain and yeah. how they man- maneuver those giant things. It's crazy. It's it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah. I can't remember. It, it starts out or if it comes in a little bit later, but it like starts out where there's a whole town, there's buildings all over the place and, and they find room for an entire city on that stage and then they move it and uh, it's just, it's really impressive how they, how they work that. And you have to give props to the people that are in charge of that and have to do that work because they really have to be on the spot. Yes, they do. And they have to get it done right now. Cause as you saw, I mean, there's not a lot of time um, mm-hmm. during the variety acts behind the curtain to get reset like that. Right. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, uh, uh, the shows pretty much run on a good schedule. People know where they need to be, but the fact that they're just always there and, and they don't really make a lot of mistakes is really impressive. Yeah. But, but what, so what was it like for you the first night that you're like, okay, well, I've been practicing at home. Are you, how do you feel when you're, you know, when, when the, the audience is walking in and you're like, okay, I got to do this. I hope I know the show well enough. Yeah. Well, and that's it. You're just kind of like, well, I've, I've done everything that I could do. Mm-hmm. I've prepared, you know, I had the book for a few weeks beforehand. And again, it's like you, you just get to that point where you're like, even if I don't feel like practicing, but I always did for that show because it's so fun. Yeah. But it's like, you just have to do it and you go in and you're like, I'm prepared as I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. And here we go. Right. But are you, but are you nervous? Are you terrified? Are you just like, find a calm? 
I I usually get nervous, and my nervousness uh, manifests as like uh, kind of sweaty palms, right? Kind of chilly, chilly sweaty palms, mm-hmm. <laughs> and my stomach will always just be a little bit of a knot. Right. And um, and I like that because, and I always tell my students this too. I'm like, if you're not a little nervous, you know, that's when the accidents happen. That's when you make stupid mistakes because you're not staying focused. Mm-hmm on what you're supposed to do. And um, so it's nice to have a little bit of nerves, but yeah, that's always the beforehand feeling. And then once I get playing, Mm -hmm. it seems like everything's fine. It's like, it's the thinking about it. That's more nerve wracking than the doing it. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I remember the first concert I played it in public, uh, not when I was just playing like snare drum or drum pad or anything like I mean, like the first actual concert, I was terrified before uh, the curtain went up. I'm like, I can't do this. I, I was just so convinced that I was going to mess up from the beginning. And I, I just I've never had anything overwhelm me like my nerves did. But 10 seconds into playing, it was gone. You're fine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the weird thing is now I don't get nervous anymore. I kind of wish I would a little bit. And I, I haven't performed in a while, but I I. Like, even when I've done plays and stuff, like, I don't even get nervous anymore. It's weird. Now you just go on. Well, and I mean, I guess there's a certain um, less anxiety that I feel now. But but I think I always feel a little bit, not, like, when I go into the show, because I've been doing it for so long, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I get to play with you guys tonight. Because, you know, right. the whole band, the band rotates, all the chairs rotate, uh, like, three or four people. So that's the cool part is, like, you never know who you're going to play with, but everybody in that band is awesome. And it's like, oh, what band's it going to be tonight? So there's not as many nerves, you know, for that one anymore. But each new thing that I do, sure, my my heart still pounds in my chest. I'm trying oh, to yeah. think of what I, I did something recently that oh, I can't. I'll, I'll think of it. OK, I'll tell you if I don't think of it now, I'll tell you later. But OK, there was something recently that and I just remembered waiting to play and my heart. I really when they say you could feel your heart in your throat. Mm-hmm. I that's, remember that. <laughs> oh yeah. Feeling, and it was just recent. I'll remember, but yes, that was cool. But it's, it's one thing because like you said, you've been doing the show for a long time. You're very comfortable with it, but you also do a lot of work with the orchestra where, okay, in two weeks, we're doing a big John Williams concert in two weeks. We're doing a big Danny Elfman thing. I mean, that that's got to keep you on your toes. Yes. Yes, it does. And um, like I said, sometimes you get your music a month out. Sometimes I might get it a week out, you know, so it, it just depends. But regardless of if I have one week or four weeks to prepare, I have to prepare. Very true. But but how much uh, rehearsal time do you this is I, I know the answer to this because we talked about it. But how much rehearsal time do you actually get with the orchestra before you perform in front of an audience? So for those uh, kinds of concerts, like you just mentioned, Danny Elfman and John Williams, I think we had two rehearsals. Yeah, that's nuts. And it was, and they were like, they're usually um, like a Thursday night, a Friday night, and then a Saturday morning. Sometimes they're a Friday night and a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. And then like the, you know, big symphonic works, orchestral works, um, we'll have a little bit more like a, maybe a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So it equates to about two hours each rehearsal. That's not much. No, 
when you think about the technical aspect of of those two composers especially, that's not a lot of time to prepare to just be ready to perform pristinely in front of an audience. Right. Now, I would imagine the the nerves are maybe a little a little higher up. A little throat. higher on those ones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a, was there a particular uh, concert that you did along those lines that really stands out as something that you you're just so proud of of your performance or just even being a part of it? I would say, yeah, like I well, the John Williams ones are just always so amazing, and mm-hmm. it, we, we, I will never get tired of playing the first four measures and then the whole thing of Star Wars. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the, because when that hits and it's like, oh, my God, and I'm I'm in this. I'm helping to make this sound. You know what I mean? It's right. like it's just it, it always amazes me. And I love doing the that kind of music. Um, when we opened the Smith Center, uh, we played. It was Symphony 2. Oh, shoot. We might have to look this one up later. <laughs> uh, which compo- of uh, John Williams? <laughs> no. Oh, I just drew a big blank. Um, I'll think of it. Okay. But that was that was another one, too, with the entire... Oh, Mahler, too. Sorry. Oh. Okay. Yeah, Resurrection, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and that has the whole choir and everything behind us. And it was just absolutely, again, just amazing to be on that stage. I think I posted, no, the one I posted on Facebook the other day was when we played Carmina Burana a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Same thing. When you get on stage with that and you're part of it and you have the entire chorus behind you as well, it's just magical. And I just, I just don't forget that, those, that feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were, when you were playing Star Wars, are you on, uh, I'm trying to think of the percussion in the beginning. Are you on timpani or xylophone? I'm on, um, my main instrument is actually the glockenspiel part. Okay. But you, it, when you play that part, you often also play the triangle. Mm. So like there's this big, you know, triangle thing at the beginning. And that's the first big hit. Oh, okay. Um, along with everything else. See, and who would think that I, that you would get a charge out of playing a triangle? It just sounds like <laughs> such a basic elementary school instrument. But John Williams loves the triangle. Oh, yeah. Yep. And and his his writing for percussion it's it's difficult, mm-hmm. um, and it's so fun. It's yeah. that's what's cool about that stuff too. It's like it's so hard at first, and then once you you're like, oh my gosh, this is so fun to play. It's just so fun. <laughs> I don't think he makes it easy on any musician. I don't no, think anything no. that's on his score pad is going to be a challenge, <laughs> no matter what what you pick. Right. Yeah. Now, I, one of the things that I I've loved about the two years that you and I have been at Nam together is that. Out of 150,000 people that are in attendance, we randomly run into each other every time. <laughs> right. And uh, yep. this year, uh, I ran into you when I was actually standing in line to meet Steve Morse from Deep Purple. And uh, you were getting ready to go play with your band Pan Rocks, which yes. is a whole different level <laughs> compared to anything we've talked about so far. Tell us about Pan Rocks. Okay, so Pan Rocks is um, a steel drum group put together by my friend Tracy Thornton. I actually met him probably three, uh, four years ago at a conference in Indianapolis, the Progressive Art Society International Convention. And he used to be a drummer 
and um, there is a drummer, mm-hmm. but along the way had discovered steel drums. And basically what he's trying to do is make them into a more um, like rock and roll instrument because mm-hmm. we usually associate them with the Caribbean music and stuff like that, Sure, which, which they are and they're beautiful, but it's like, okay, why not play something else on them? So he created pan rocks and uh, we recorded uh, about three years ago. First of all, in uh, Burbank, they put together a documentary, which you can find on YouTube if you look it up. And it's a documentary of us all playing different rock and roll songs. And our drummer was Stephen Perkins um, and Tracy Guns, who was the Guns from Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. He's now the Guns for L.A. Guns. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Billy C. and on bass, which is crazy. Right. And then uh, um, we had one of the guys from Kiss. He's he's not one of the original four Oh, okay. I'm trying to think of his name now. But anyway, so they all backed us. And Jane's Addiction. Sorry. Sorry, uh, Stephen Perkins. So <laughs> what a, Stephen what a Perkins. weird combination of musicians <laughs> to put together. <laughs> right. But we, we all recorded together um, and, and uh, did this big recording for Pan Rocks. And the following year, uh, they did another one. It was all Rush music. And I was unable to do that one because I was already contracted into a different program for that weekend. And then Nam came along and Tracy got invited to play at the ultimate Nam night, mm-hmm. which is the Anaheim Nam version of the ultimate jam night. Right. And we, we got to play with uh, Mike Portnoy on drums and all these, again, big names that I don't even want to start saying them cause I'll forget somebody. Right. But, <laughs> but it's, it's uh, such an amazing, okay. I, I love the concept of it for one, like taking an instrument that we associate with, a, with just a certain uh, polarized view and saying, you know what though, there's something more that can be done with this. Like let's, let's think outside the box. Let's not use a bass guitar just for a bass guitar. Let's have it make sounds. Let's have it do something different. I love that concept. Yeah, it's really great. And uh, it was really even more special that night, too, was that we had already been planning to play YYZ from Rush. And then Neil Peart passed away like that week. That's right. Yeah. So it was even more special that we played that. Um, But like like seeing the different sounds with the bass guitar and stuff, Tracy's actually working on a sort of like a wah-wah pedal. Oh. As far as I know, I'm pretty sure that he's working on something like that for steel drum because they're acoustic. Right. But that doesn't mean you can't hook something up and manipulate sounds. Sure. I mean, you could do it electronically or you could do something that sort of bends the metal configuration like, uh, yeah. you know, like maybe something like you would, the way that a timpani works with a foot pedal. Uh, you could do something like that kind of concept with a steel drum. The, the metal would have to be flexible, but sturdy, I think, to do that. Yeah. But I love the sound of steel drums. I mean, they're just a beautiful instrument. Yes, I do love them. Are they tough to learn? They're tough. Um, I remember the first time that I really saw a steel drum. I think I was at Disneyland, like in high school or something. And um, I saw some of the guys playing there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought to myself, I'm like, I want to try that. I'm going to learn that. And it wasn't until college that I've got my own pair mm-hmm. and started to learn it. And yeah, it's a whole different animal. I mean, 
it, there's nothing that you can relate it to. They're kind of, uh, they don't have a lot of play in the tone, right? Like you have to be pretty specific where you hit them or is there a little bit of give? Like if you hit in this general area, you'll get the right sound. On the bigger notes, because like if you ever looked inside one, there's like the notes that are like, you know, four inches across and then mm-hmm. the ones that are like one inch across. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit more give for the big notes, but they still have their sweet spot. So, yeah. you know, you find the spot that's going to sound the best mm-hmm. and you aim for that spot. Um, I think everybody always, I shouldn't say everybody. I've had a lot of people say, well, you have to be a percussionist to play steel drums, which is completely untrue. We do have an advantage just because we're used to playing with mallets already. And you're used to that rhythm and just moving your hands in, in conjunction with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's required for something like that. No. And there's a lot of people that don't play any percussion instruments, but they play steel drum. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the setup of them and everything has nothing to do with like a keyboard or anything, you know, there's situated certain ways and you really just, I mean, for me, at least it was again, putting one hand on one note and repeating to myself, this is F, this is F when my hand feels like this, this is where F is. Oh, (laughs) okay. That's a good association. Right. And then it was like, okay, my hand is at this angle. That's G. That note right there is a G. (laughs) (laughs) It was very slow going. And I don't know if other people have other ways of of learning, but that's how I did it. No, that association works. I mean, you'll you'll get it too. just if you're you know, if you know what an F is in in whatever octave, then you you know, some people can do it by uh, just by sound and then other people Mm -hmm. do it visually. Other people do it by vibration. But that's a great uh, that's a great association. I like that. Um, I want to ask you too, and I don't know if you ever saw the guy, he used to play in front of the MGM grand every night, older gentleman. I think he moved down to Fremont street, but he would play along to uh, a little boom box and he oh, would play, yeah. uh, uh, the, uh, steel drums to popular songs. Yeah. Kind of neat. He, I mean, he did a good job. I got kind of tired of it after a while, but I had, <laughs> you have to remember that the, the, most of the people that walk down the strip are transient. They're here once or for a couple of nights. And I walk down the strip like once or twice a week. So for me, I experience the same things over and over again. And I have to remember, but yeah, how many other people are walking up and down the street that have never heard this guy and never will again? Yeah. And they just see him once. And that was the cool thing. I I go out and do things like that, um, mostly for like private parties and stuff. Mm-hmm. But same thing. It's like I have tracks and I have me. Right. And in, in the olden days... Uh, we had a band. Yeah, we had a band (laughs) and, um, actually all went out live and, uh, and these days it's more of, um, tracks. So we took the band in the studio and made the tracks. So they're, they're pretty cool because they're, you know, actual, actually us playing. So it's a little bit more versatile now because it's like, well, we'd love it if you would hire the whole band, but if they can't do that, you can start kind of scaling it back. I just don't know how you find the time to schedule anything like that in the middle of having students and, and doing, you know, preparing curriculum, grading papers. Then you've got your show that you're a sub in, and then you've got, you know, you've got to do a Prokofiev symphony. Where do you find time to do these other little projects? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I, I meet myself coming and going. Um, <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> But that's part of the passion, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't yeah. take those extra gigs if you didn't really want to do something different. Because right. I would imagine even though you're doing these shows that you love, like 
it it does get stale after a while if the shows aren't changing up a little bit here and there. It it could, yeah. Um, I I for myself at least have had very few times in my life if I've played something a lot of times that I get sick of it because I just love being there doing it. Right. Um, but I know I've talked to some people over the years that are just like, oh my god, if I have to play this one more time. <laughs> And then they turn around and say, but I'm really lucky and blessed that I get to play every night, yeah. you know? I think it's that perspective. And I would also think that, uh, you know, when you look out at the audience and you see they're enjoying what you're doing, that gives you a little bit of a charge to get through maybe one song that you just don't feel like playing that night. It, yeah, it does. There's there's always one or <laughs> even in my steel drum tracks, there's one song and uh Every time I get to it, you know, and it's all just the book is in order with the tracks. Right. And every time I get to that song, I'm like, oh, I was going to take that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, so, use yeah. That, uh, I use that same <laughs> phrase with, oh, I was going to block that person on Facebook. <laughs> I meant right. to do it. There's that person again. <laughs> uh, right. I want to ask you too, because I, I find the marimba to be a very fascinating instrument because for me as a drummer, and I'm a kit drummer more than a, a percussionist, I can do a little bit of percussion, but it's not, I, I'm not skilled in, in that. Uh, I, so I play the kit. And when I watch somebody play a marimba, I'm like, okay, but you're holding two mallets in each hand. You're not just hitting one thing. You're hitting two. Like, how do you, how do you learn that? Um, so the way I learned it, and I didn't start for mallet marimba until college, I teach it to my private students now somewhere around, uh, seventh or eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't learn it until college. And at that time I had a job in a portrait studio and whenever we didn't have people there, I had my mallets at work and I would just hold them. And that was the first thing because it is so weird. It's so weird. To first learn how to hold. Yeah, it looks awkward. And like when I teach my students now, their first like two weeks of four mallets is just hold the mallets. I like if you're watching TV, hold the mallet, just hold them, huh. keep it and learn how to, to move them. And, and there's certain exercise you can do to use gravity to, to drop the mallet and bring it back up, which is what I used to do at work at the portrait studio, sitting there waiting for our next people. Mm. I'm just sitting there with my mallets. I always had a pair in my car. Right. Sitting at the sitting at the red light, I'd hold the mallets. <laughs> and and then there's a, just technique exercises just like everybody else to, you know, start maneuvering them on the instrument. Mm -hmm. Wow, that that's interesting. I, I that makes a lot of sense. But I would have never guessed that. And I don't know. I mean, that's how I did it. That's how I teach it. I can't speak for other teachers, but I have found that 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 is the best way to do it. Cause they have to become like your fingers. Mm -hmm. You know, I yeah. pick them up now and it's like, I can just pick them up and play, but right. I've been doing it for ever. So, <laughs> yeah. but I watch my, and I have to remind myself that when I'm trying to teach my seventh grade kid and they're just so awkward. But is it, is it a double <laughs> strike on one bar or is it, are you hitting two different bars at the same time? Oh, two different notes. Yeah. Really? Okay. So you're really yeah. playing four notes at the same time at any given time throughout a piece. That's yes. a lot to keep track of, isn't it? It is. And, uh, but again, the more you do it, this just happens, you know, as you learn pieces and permutations and techniques, 
Mm-hmm. And then you go to, you know, six mallets. Some, some, I did some six mallets in, in college. That's I crazy. Did, I did enough to, you know, know how to do it. And if I need to, but um, some people have really excelled on that. And, and my professor did his whole dissertation on that, which is why probably, you know, we all learned it mm-hmm. um, as part of that too. And at the end, you hit the uh, triangle with a tiny mallet that you've been hiding that's, in your mouth the whole time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating to watch, though, because there is uh, there's a real art form. It almost looks like a dance in a way when you see somebody playing a, a rhythm on a marimba, especially if they're using multiple mallets. It just looks that much more impressive. But there really is a, a beautiful art to watching somebody play that instrument. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's I mean, it's just the instrument itself is beautiful number yes. one it's like those grand instruments and then watching the mallets and watching the movement yeah yep i agree yeah it's it's fascinating and and i love the sound of it too it just if you're in the right room where you can really hear it uh just the the way that the tones decay and it's just such a beautiful sound i i i think it's very much though like steel drums, marimba is often considered more of like an island type instrument. Right. Yep. You know, but it's in orchestras. It is now. Yeah. And there's, it's still not as prevalent as glockenspiel and right. xylophone and, and even vibraphone. Um, but we do use it and it's becoming, you know, more common. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, the, I mean, if you look at the history of marimba, that would be a whole other podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> well, when we get the steel drums into the orchestra, <laughs> right, right, which which Pan Rocks may be on its way to creating, we could be. Yeah, I just yep. I love I love the fact that you had to turn down playing with these well known and famous musicians because you had another gig booked. Like, oh, I, right. I love the concept of that. That's so much fun <laughs> to me. It's like I'm sorry, Mike Mike Portnoy. I've already got something else I'm doing. It was awful. I was like, are you kidding me? Why does this have to be on the same? I mean, literally, it was the same two days. Yeah, that had to, that just had to be painful, I'm sure. It was very painful. Yeah. I, I got to see uh, Dream Theater perform years ago in Denver. They were opening for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and uh, Deep Purple was headlining. So it was it was a drummer's dream, that show. And uh, I was so impressed with his playing. I mean, to to listen to him on a record is one thing. To watch him in a video is one thing. To see him live, that's a whole nother level of musicianship. Oh, yeah. Yep. And if uh, at the uh, Ultimate Nam night when we played with him, I was about two feet from him. Oh, okay. <laughs> on stage. So I'm playing and I'm just like literally looking over my left shoulder mm-hmm. watching him play. Yeah. It was amazing. Is it, is it, is it amazing. hard to watch that and still pay attention to what you're doing? Because I think I would just stop playing and watch him. <laughs> no, I would do it on parts where I was doing like some chord comping. Mm-hmm. So I play the double seconds uh, for steel drums. And so sometimes I have melody and then sometimes I'm playing harmony chords. Mm-hmm. And um, And if I'm playing melody, I have to watch everything that I'm doing. Right. But if I'm comping... You know, if you're on one chord for four measures or eight measures, something like that, and just switching to another one that's close by, mm-hmm. that's that's when I was watching him. Yeah. <laughs> now, wasn't wasn't that performance another one? I, I could be mixing it up with another one that you did because you do so many. But uh, wasn't there like some really tough parts in that in that performance too? 
Yes, that was on uh, on YYZ. So we only we did two songs that night. It was YYZ and uh, Bob O'Reilly, also oh, known as Teenage song. Wasteland. <laughs> and um, and Bob O'Reilly wasn't too crazy, uh, but YYZ, yeah, there was some stuff in there. And so going back to what I was saying earlier about setting my metronome at forty. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was that because all those runs, if if you know the piece, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean. Think about that whole beginning part. I'm not going to try to sing it because if I try to sing, you'll know why it's better that I just play an instrument. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) But all that stuff at the beginning, all those runs with the stops and the different meters and stuff, we all had that in unison. Oh, wow. And we didn't have a we had a rehearsal that morning for about an hour in the hallway of the venue. Um, (laughs) Just the steel drums. So actually, when we played that night with Mike Portnoy and all those guys, that was the first time that we all played together. Wow, that's amazing! And I I saw the video, and and it's it's so incredible that you guys sounded like you'd been playing together for a long time. And I think that's moving out to to actually when I moved to California, um, and I started meeting some people that were in the film orchestra. It was kind of the same thing. They really do not have a lot of rehearsal before they just start recording the soundtrack. And right. when you think about some of those those composers like Danny Elfman or John Williams, where you're playing a lot of difficult stuff, you would think it would be two weeks of rehearsals, uh, a lot of last minute changes and things like that. But but much like you guys, uh, where you know you just you're like, all right, we have our parts. It's up to us to learn it, and then we get together and we do it a couple times, and then we're like, okay, we're good to go. I would have never conceived until I started meeting people like you. That that's how it's done. I would have thought weeks, if not a couple months of rehearsals. Yeah. Yep. And I get that a lot. People ask me that. They're like, how long were you guys rehearsing for that? And I'm like, this morning. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, you know, like you said, we're all doing our own stuff for weeks ahead of time. But as far as being together as one unit, you don't get a whole lot of time. No, you really don't. And, and, but even, even free form musicians, like if you go watch some really good jazz, we have a club here called the dispensary and, and there's some really amazing jazz musicians that just pop in. And the first time I went there, I went to see my friend, Derek Jones, who plays bass over at Ka. And oh, yeah. uh, I, so I, I walk in and I'm like, wow, these guys are really good. And I sit there and listen to a few songs and then they take a break and he comes over and I said, how long have you guys been playing together? And he goes, tonight. how is this possible in places like the dispensary that's you know all those guys get off their shows yeah and they just go and jam out together i know it's awesome but there's a certain i think you can get away with that in jazz in a way you can't get away with in other forms of music because jazz is so free form and as long right. as your goal is, I'm going to play my part while everyone else is shining. And when it's my turn to shine, I'll shine. And you're respectful of the other musicians. You'll get something great out of it. Right. Yeah. You know, but it's just so amazing that it's just, it's just pure. This is what I'm feeling in the moment kind of music. And I love that. Yes. Yeah. I always wish I would have gotten, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't say more into jazz because I love jazz, but I've never been like a real jazz player. Oh, it just okay. wasn't wasn't something that uh, was available to me growing up. Okay. Um, as far as like in my schools and stuff, and so I just kind of never really did it. And so even now, I find myself 
if I am in a situation where somebody wants me to take a solo, mm-hmm. that's when, okay, so now we're back to what are, when are you nervous? Oh, that's when I get nervous. Yeah. <laughs> and then everybody always says, well, there's no wrong notes. And if it doesn't sound right, you know, just move it by a half step. It'll be right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> just pretend you were working your way down to that, that note. <laughs> right. And and you think about, you know, in the, in the seventies, when drummers were playing 15 and 20 minute drum solos to 40,000 people. And I'm like, that's just, it's so bizarre, <laughs> but the attention span isn't there for that kind of thing now. No, I don't know. But I, you know, I'm, different. I'm actually not a big fan of jazz. I don't, ever crave listening to it uh unless it's jazz fusion like i love chick korea and the electric band that kind of stuff but oh I, yeah when i go down and i see it performed i have such an appreciation for it i wouldn't listen to it on its own but i love seeing it performed seeing it live yeah that's my favorite is seeing it live yeah for sure well before we uh we wrap up here i want to ask you especially as a teacher i think that you would have some good insight into this Percussion is such a beautiful world. And I think that there's a lot that we as musicians get out of it intellectually and physically, emotionally. Uh, But for somebody who really wants to get into the world and and doesn't really know where to start or what instrument they want, what would you suggest if they came to you and said, Rachel, well, Professor Rachel, um, I really want to get into drums, but I don't know where to start. What would you tell them? Um, I get that a lot from my my students that come in when they're, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, whatever. And I just tell them, well, let's take these first several lessons and try out all the different instruments. And usually one will resonate more than the rest with somebody. Mm-hmm. Like they'll want to do drum set or, oh, I really like the timpani or I really like this uh, snare drum. And so then we'll continue lessons and I do teach total percussion. So like I said earlier, I teach the fundamentals, but we're always branching out. Sure. So we'll, we'll find the one that resonates with them the most. And I mean, even though timpani isn't like a starting instrument, if that's something that's really interesting them, I work it into even their beginning lessons, even if it's just like five minutes of ear training mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and then eventually they, they figure out what what part of percussion they like the best and um and kind of if that makes sense and then they'll um you know carry on more on that instrument but i still make them do all the other stuff too because we all need to do everything well yeah it's good to be (laughs) well-rounded too because something that you learn doing one thing you might be able to create something doing something else like if like if i were to sit there and play uh rototoms or you know like uh what are they like the quads for a marching band uh i might learn something on that that i can take back to the kit and go you know what i had this rhythm i came up with maybe i could see how that plays on a kit Yes, absolutely. Yep. You can always uh, cross um, instruments like that. It's funny that you picked those that instrument because that's what I played in, in high school. Oh, I marched really? the, I marched the tenors, yeah. <laughs> I, I marched, I think, for three days with the marching band playing bass drum. <laughs> and well, what happened was we, we relocated from Michigan to Colorado and I had a drama class in Michigan and I only had one month before the end of the school year when we moved. And so they didn't have a drama class for me to go into, or they did have one. And then I started, I think it banned the next year, but I, I was not as skilled as those kids were in my sight reading. So I was really behind. So they put me on bass drum and I'm like, I don't even have any notes in this piece. Why am I marching? 
I, I, I didn't have that same camaraderie that I did with the teacher that I had in Michigan in, in fifth grade, where he was the one that gave me the extra hours to go in and, and um, you know, learn the rudiments. Uh, and so I never found anybody that I really wanted to learn from or, or enjoyed somebody that made me want to work. Right, right. Yeah, that's very, very important. Yeah, what you do makes a big difference to those kids. And I know you well enough to know how you interact with them. And I, I'm sure that a lot of people continue to play because you're there inspiring them. So thank you so much for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, my last question you. for you, I actually meant to ask you this in the beginning, but uh, how did you find your way into percussion in the first place? Oh, it's, it's, this is a... The reason I asked that is because it's not a very female-oriented instrument. It's it, we, right. Music was always very segregated. If girls played the flute and the oboe. Boys played the drums. So uh, that must have been a, a weird thing for people. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting, actually, because when I was um, young, my two older sisters and I inherited my grandmother's organ. She was a, a she was a music teacher, my dad's mom, and she passed away before I was ever born. So I've never known her, but she was a music teacher, played all the instruments, but she played the church, the church organ and everything. So she had this Hammond organ. Oh, I love the Hammond organ. <laughs> and we inherited it uh, as young kids. And my mom said, well, we've got this organ in the house. So you three girls are going to play, you know, take lessons. Mm hmm which was a pretty big deal because um, uh, it was hard to come by in where we were to get lessons like that. Mm -hmm. But we got it worked out anyway. So fast forward ahead six years to when I go to to uh, sixth grade and I'm signing up for band. And I already played a little clarinet and flute because my sisters played those. And so I was going to sign up for flute. Mm -hmm. And there was a list and the, there was like 20 people signed up for flute. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so I thought, well, I'll sign up for clarinet. There's like, you know, 15 people signed up for clarinet. And the next thing said percussion and there was nobody signed up. <laughs> really? <laughs> so I put my name there because I was like, I don't know what this is, but nobody else has signed up. So that means I'll get it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not a lot of room for a Hammond organ in a sixth grade band. Right. Right. And isn't that hilarious? So and then we found out and growing up in small town, Wisconsin was a little bit different than being in in the big town here. Mm -hmm. But um, our teacher was able to require that you had to have two years of keyboard experience in order to take percussion as a beginner. Really? So therefore, I already had five years experience and and I was in. And I never left. <laughs> well, what's what's the rationale behind that? Do you know? I think being a teacher now, I think that with all the um, technical things that you need to teach to wind players from the beginning, mm -hmm. percussionists often kind of get left behind because they can make a sound right away, right? Right, yeah. And so that's why percussionists get in trouble because they get bored. Mm -hmm. They get bored waiting. But if you already had two years of keyboard experience, you can transfer that to the mallet instrument very quickly True. and you can play along with the band right away. Well, and, and a lot of people don't realize that piano actually is a percussive instrument. Right. 
Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. And, and really too, there's certain uh, rhythmic things to playing piano as well. So I could, I could see that being an advantage. I've never heard of that being a requirement for percussion, but yeah, I guess that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and so everybody that was in the percussion section in my sixth grade band, we all had experience already. So we were able to, you know, do the right thing like right away. And our teacher could work a little bit more with the winds and then we could bring it together very quickly. So yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that. Yeah. I love but I love <laughs> I love when people just kind of fall into something that they find that passion for because you didn't go in wanting to be a percussionist. You just kind of fell into it and then yes. you know, look what you've turned that into. You're playing all the time, you're teaching kids, you're entertaining a, a couple hundred thousand people a year if not more. I mean, that's that's a that's a lot for somebody who wanted to play the flute. And- <laughs> Uh, isn't that crazy it is yeah I just I count my blessings every day I really do I even when I'm sitting in a rehearsal sometimes and and I've got two notes to play mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there pretty soon I'm sitting there I'm like this is so cool like just watching this all come together and yeah. being a part of it and and I would have never thought in my wildest dreams you know growing up in a my town had a hundred people in it, Wow! <laughs> but I went to school in a town down the road that had a little over 2000. Um, okay. but you know, still it's like I moved here and my high school had 3000. Yeah. So it's such, such a difference. And, and, and I love going back home and my family's there and my nieces and nephews and everybody are there. Um, but had I not come out here when I did, I don't know where I'd be. And I, I just, I feel really lucky to be here. I think it's a combination of that and you taking advantage of the opportunities too, because it, being here does not make you successful. You have to go for things that you want. And if you don't do that, you're never going to get anywhere. It doesn't matter how good you are, how passionate you are. You got to, you got to find the opportunities. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've had such a good time talking to you. I always enjoy talking to you. And uh, when hopefully uh, whenever this pandemic is over and we can get back to a normal life, you'll be back out there on stage entertaining lots of people. But at least in the meantime, you're able to teach. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely come back and see us again. It was a lot of fun. I will. Thank you very much. You bet. Take care, Rachel. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, she's such an awesome person. I'm so glad we were able to finally do this. And, you know, a lot of this, we had a really good conversation uh, after NAM one year heading to a party. I think it was at the Hilton. And um, just I just learned so much about how the process works. And it's not at all what I expected. So I'm really glad that we were able to finally talk and that she wanted to come on the show and share this with you guys. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, go check out the links in the YouTube video. Uh, getting to play with Mike Portnoy must have been just uh, a blast. I can't even imagine. <laughs> but anyway, you know, you got to take advantage of those opportunities when they when they come. And if you don't have them coming, you got to go find them. That's how you succeed in this business. And she's doing great. So thank you for joining me for another week of the Haskin Cast podcast. We'll be back next week with another podcast. And I'm actually getting ready to upload that. So it's done before my move. You guys have a great week and I'll talk to you soon.